Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gishin, the author of Insecurity Analysis, and today I'm really excited to present you with my conversation with Jimmy Sony, who is the author of The Founders, his exceptionally well-researched book on the story and the team behind PayPal. Um, I highly recommend the book. I found a ton of lessons in it. They were pretty nuanced though. It's not a blueprint for how to engineer a, a, a billion dollar exit. It's To me, it's more the story of, um, of this group of outsiders that are now insiders and, and frankly titans often in technology and venture capital, which is one of the one of the best aspects of the book is you get to see people like Elon Musk or Peter Thiel early in their careers. Everybody's sort of on their first or second company or fresh out of college. And these people are dealing with uncertainty and with doubt and they're trying to figure things out that they've never done before. And so that's, you know, to to Jimmy's credit, I think he did a, a great job of of working out these early um, foundational experiences for for people who then later led and shaped a lot of other companies and key lessons from the book are, are really about how this how this group how this company survived and thrived in spite of the many things that did or could have gone wrong um, and a lot of it comes down to culture a sense of urgency figuring out distribution figuring out um, how to mitigate certain risks and deal with fraud or the, the capital raise and and there's there's a lot to unpack there um but but i think the the lessons are sort of nuanced and, and you're in the trenches with these people and you feel the enormous pressure and and kind of the the danger um and the risk that that the company could fail at any moment so we're gonna uh, get into all of that with with jimmy who brought an incredible energy to this conversation and um i think you're gonna learn a ton i I mean, I really recommend you you, you get the book. I, th I think it's it's excellent. Um, and uh, yeah, with that, let's go. Okay, so Jimmy, thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed the book. It's heavily marked up. I thought it was very well researched. And um, so I, I can't wait to dig into it. And I want to start with, you, you said something in the, um, I think in the epilogue or, or in the notes where you're writing that um, Ryan Holiday introduced you to Peter Thiel and that kind of yeah. got the got the ball or the rock, as you call it, rolling. And I'm just, just let's set the table a little bit. Like, how did you find your way to the story? And, and you just mentioned this to me, like, it's not a biography. It's not focused around one individual person. You know, how did you go about, um, you know, sourcing and like building it out? Like, yeah. tell me about the process. No, it's great. I, I like it. I like the. I mean, part of this is I know you made it to the end because you got <laughs> you made it through my my notes, which are or at least the beginning of the notes. Um, so yeah, take a step back. I I had done a book on Claude Shannon, an information theorist and electrical engineer and mathematician. Actually, your audience is more likely to know him than most people in the general public. And I had studied Bell Labs, and Bell Labs is you know it's like the twentieth century. Chicago Bulls dynasty, you know, it's like, or mm. I guess the Bulls were in the 20th century. So an earlier dynasty of technological talent. And I start thinking like, okay, what are other groupings? So actually it's interesting. I read, I read both more stuff about groups and I read stories of groups themselves. So there was a great book called Collaborative Circles that it's actually in my end notes. I hope more people check it out. Um, it it I, I think I found it because of Patrick Collison. Uh, if I remember, he tweeted something about it. 
Um, maybe him. But in any case, I find this book, Collaborative Circles, because somebody had sent out a, a thing. I read that and I'm like, oh, this is super interesting. What are these group dynamics, right? Um, and and I it it struck me that there was something about groups that's different than writing about an individual. I had done books about individuals. I had done a book about Cato the Younger. I had done a book about Claude Shannon. And I'd also written ghostwritten memoirs for different people, right? Meaning like I was the person telling their story. But I started to like wonder like maybe my next challenge or like one of the things I ought to think about are what are groups. And the, the books I thought about doing first were all done. <laughs> Xerox Park, uh, Fairchild Semiconductor, these were finished. Somebody had done them. So I was like, okay, great. Uh, somebody did those. I'll buy those and read them. And I just found that, that the, the PayPal story seemed to me to be a place where no one had really gone back and like gone in pretty deeply. And my, my, my hunch, it was just a hunch was, oh, there's a few reasons why. One, it's not immediately intuitive that like a story about a payment services company from 1998 to 2002 is like riveting stuff, right? Like that's probably part of it. The second is, um, if you were a day-to-day -day tech journalist and you have access to the people at the center of this story, you really like, you would almost be doing a professional disservice if you asked about PayPal as opposed to asking about SpaceX or Tesla or Palantir or whatever, right? And then the third reason is, it's just really, really hard. Like, these are, it's an insane constellation of people. And like, how are you ever going to get access to any, you know, it's like I had this, this problem of I was literally starting from a blank sheet of paper. Like, how do I even do this? Now, I had one kind of interesting, you know, advantage or, or call it a, a little bit of a leg up in some ways, which is that I had a good friend, um, Ryan Holiday, who is a really great writer. And he and I were in touch about this project. And I, I basically said to him, I was like, look, I have this theory that there's a project here, but I, I don't, I need someone to make the first introduction to see if I can do this. So he makes an intro to Peter. And I kept this email actually for my own, like, kind of, kind of a nice reminder in life of like, just throw the long ball and see what happens. And Peter wrote back, he was really gracious and said, like, we'd love to meet, like, let's, let's talk. And I, because of the Claude Shannon book, I think he anticipated like, oh, the somebody's who is doing a little bit, something different than just like, like, what is the story? It's more like, what is the thinking and the story? So I, I, I managed to wrangle a meeting with him, right? Which isn't actually the, a big deal. As I learned, like Peter will meet with a lot of different people who have ideas, right? So actually at the time I thought it was like, something flattering. And I realized later, I was like, wow, he's just somebody who like, he looks for kind of concepts all the time. And he's meeting with people all the time, which is great. Um, and it's fantastic. I prepared for that meeting crazy rigorously. And so I just like, I read and absorbed like everything on PayPal. And then I went into the meeting and tried to act like nonchalant, a little nonchalant, right? Like I tried to show that I like wasn't, I had spent the last like several weeks mainlining information. And my, you know, the basic premise of the pitch is I said, look, as I've read things that are out there, it seems to me that you all came together at one of the most interesting times in Silicon Valley history, and you did something interesting. The company is still around today. The alumni of the company have gone on to do all kinds of things, but nobody's really like figured out, like, how did you all connect? How did the company come to be? What are the challenges you faced? You know, there were a couple books out there, but I said, you know, one was a memoir, so it's always going to be a little bit, we know, it's always going to have that person's individual perspective. That memoir, by the way, is proved really helpful to me in understanding the story. But it started in December of 99 when Eric, jo Eric Jackson joins the company PayPal. I, I told Peter, I said, look, there's a year and a half of history here that no one's documented. And I anticipate that if I went back and looked, there'd be even more. 
And then I think the thing that clinched it is I said something like, look, I see this in my eyes. It's like Lord of the Rings, but set in Silicon Valley. <laughs> and I think, I think that's like what I think that's what got to him. Like, I think he like laughed. And then I think he said, you know, even after that, really, his, he had a bunch of really good questions for me. He like pushed back on the notion on the notion of the book, but then agreed to essentially what he agreed to was like, I'll sit for interviews with you. And then I followed up and I said, would you also be willing to make like a couple of introductions of where I don't think a cold email is going to make it over the transom, right? And in my mind, the people I was, I was really thinking about Reed Hoffman and Max Levchin, because I think if I had cold, done, cold outreach to either of them, you know, they're on the receiving end of just so much stuff every day. It, it, there was no way an email with zero weight coming from me would have necessarily made it over the kind of like, you know, the palace guards. <laughs> right. Yes. And so, but I figured like with Peter, if they wrote, if he wrote to them, they would at least entertain the possibility of this. So that was how it all got started. And, and by the way, even at that point, like just because I had done research and had one person's like assent to sit for interviews didn't mean anything. Right. It like, actually was. It meant I could get a couple of meetings. But what I did from there is I just kind of created like a, a, a series of documents of kind of outlining the history for myself, finding all the information I could from publicly available sources like YouTube and old articles. So I actually um, thank goodness for the Brooklyn Public Library, because if you are a library member, you can have access to LexisNexis and like all these other sources, like basically where you can print out old articles, right? And so I ended up just like, this is, uh, it's funny, I don't actually know that I've talked about this, but what I did was I went back and I typed in the words, the, the names of all the key people and the words Confinity, X.com, Fieldlink, and PayPal, which are all the names of the companies over this four-year span. I typed them all into these like epic databases, like the, the ProQuest. And... Yeah, ProQuest and like all these. So I typed them all in and I just, I mean, honestly, I, I like killed a couple trees doing this, but I printed out every single article no i mean way. hundreds of articles <laughs> right because because my thought my thesis was basically look i'm completely ignorant mm -hmm. uh, i don't write about tech i i am coming in at this like as some random person who does history but this is the first time i'm dealing with subjects that are alive like claude shannon was dead so no matter what i said about him there wasn't going to be some big uproar right um and so I, what I did was I created folders. So I had folders of all the articles about the companies from 98, 99, 2000, 2001, and 2002, and a little bit from later, but not really. And, and it was, it's actually funny thinking back on this. Oh my God, I can't believe I did this. So I, I actually found like a, an archive of all of the X.com press releases. So like every press release they sent out, I would read it. And Again, press releases are like mind-numbingly boring, right? Like they're the but every time you if you're creating a company and you're Elon and you're trying to get press, you're trying to hustle, you're trying to really like get attention, a press release for a writer can be really revealing. Here's why. Language about what the company does changes from press release to press release. And if you notice little changes, you can see like oh, they're styling themselves this way or this way. I also I also used it there were always names and numbers on the bottom of every press release. And so I would find whoever like wrote the press release and then I would contact them. I, I would find little things, like I'll give you an example. There's a section in the middle of the book where I find a press release actually from one of Elon's earlier companies, which is called Zip2. Inside the Zip2 press release was a mention about the, the 
the implementation of Java. Like Java was just launched in like 96 or something. And it launches in like April or May of 96, I think. I might have these facts wrong. but And, and by September, Elon's incorporated Java into Zip2. There's a person they quote there named Lou Tucker, Dr. Lou Tucker, who's like some director of research at Java or something. And so I reached out to Lou Tucker. <laughs> and basically, like every document I had was essentially like a little piece of evidence. And then I was like, okay, well, what happens if Joe Smith, let's contact Joe Smith, right? And so I remember like there was this document I found where they had somebody quoted who was helping to put together like the pitch decks for Confinity. And I managed to get to that person. And he, like, he was like, wow, this is random, but I'll talk yeah. to you in whatever. Um, so we had that discussion and it gave me one little fact. And then I basically just used a combination of interviews and paper. But this is a long way of answering your question. But I suspect your question was sort of like, how did you even get started? This was how I got started. And, and I think that, you know, the only reason I share it is because I think that sometimes these projects can seem intimidating or like, like they're impossible to bite off. But you would be... Every resource I just mentioned was was free. There was I didn't pay a cent for I have a library membership and I pay taxes, I suppose, but it was it was like the Brooklyn Public Library underwrote like, <laughs> you know, like all this, right? And then and then the YouTube videos, like YouTube videos are amazing. You can you can filter by date and just like like cut off what you want to watch and just understand it. So I'll give you an example. There's this amazing series of of talks that Paul Graham and uh, the, the Y Combinator leadership organized that are called, I think, Startup School. They may have changed the name. There was this amazing video of Max Levchin that I don't think he expected would be on video because he says at the beginning, like, please don't like blog about this or whatever. <laughs> it, he's wearing a backwards hat and he's like talking to this audience about his startup adventures. And he's not, you know, like today he's a, he's on CNBC and he's mm. interviewed on Bloomberg and he's like, you know, he's, he's, he's Max Levchin. He's the CEO of a public company. Back then, I think he was he was finished with PayPal, but he was starting Slide. So he was unusually open about what he was saying. And I remember just like, oh my God, I took insane notes. <laughs> I like wrote everything down. I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe this. There's a Q&A and he's very funny in the Q&A, right? I found that. I also found this incredible presentation that Elon gave at Stanford in 2003. So 2003 is, he's already like a year into SpaceX, if I remember correctly, maybe a little longer than that. He's past PayPal because PayPal went public in 2002, but he's reflecting on Zip2 and on PayPal for like an hour and change or whatever. And he's just answering questions somewhat in an unvarnished way about what it is to build a company. What was he thinking about with Zip2? And because it's from 2002 and not 2022, it's it's just, it's a different set of observations. He's closer to what just happened in his life, right? I found a similar, this is from Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders, which is this big archive at Stanford. I found a similar set of videos from Peter and Max. So Peter and Max do a tandem presentation, right? It's both of them. They're not polished. They're not, you know, it's like 2004. They're sitting in these chairs on this stage, right? And they are meeting just a little ways away from where they first encountered one another at the Tierman Engineering Hall at Stanford. And so these were the resources I used and all of them were freely and publicly available. And it gave me basically like a foundation atop which I could build interviews. Because then what happened is I, I would go into interviews and I was at least like reasonably well-informed as opposed to like 
I'm completely ignorant. Can you yeah, talk to yeah, me about, yeah, you know, yeah. and so that way you're not wasting these principles time. Sounds like an epic five-year treasure hunt. <laughs> and I can very much relate to that because a lot of, I mean, how I got started with writing was like also sitting in the library and like going into, you know, the ProQuest and all of those and like just like looking up random articles and all of this stuff that's kind of lost to, you know, like nobody does that. And like, so everything, and, and it it creates this excitement when you when you find a nugget and you're like, oh my God, nobody... And, and you can connect, connect all of those dots, right, in, in a way that, that nobody else has. Um, and it, it strikes me, right, so I, I was thinking, I, I didn't realize at the beginning of the book that you had full access to, to Peter, because sort of par part of the theme of the book is, right, this group of outsiders coming together, and afterwards, they sell the company, they have the exit, and a lot of them leave, right, and there's this culture clash between eBay and, and PayPal. And they become the new group of insiders in Silicon Valley, right? And so just when you think about, I mean, I was, I was trying to, to, to wrap my arms around really what, what was happening there in terms of, because in retrospect, you, right, there's these, and you mentioned that the mafia is probably the wrong way to phrase it, right? Like there's the diaspora, but, but it is kind of an, an interesting and special group of people. And so, so tell me a little bit like how you think about why and how they came together was this sort of kind of self self-selection like what was going on to like create this this really unique group of i guess outsiders or just yeah give me give me give me yeah. your take on 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 why and how these people yeah i think i think there's a story or the story i tried to tell was the story of, to answer that question from 1998 to let's say like the end of 2002 there's probably another story that's waiting to be written that's much longer about everything that happens from 2003 to now, mm. right? So, so in, a, in an interesting way, like my, my piece of this is the piece that predates the investment in Facebook. It predates the creation of LinkedIn. It predates Yammer, predates everything, Slide, all of them, right? But part of what I tried to do is I tried to show people how somewhat unexpected like that some of these people were not like you know today they're seen as like text titans right but i what i tried to show people is that in some cases you had some people with some engineering experience or maybe they had cut their teeth at a company or two great example of that is the head of ux and design at paypal was a woman named sky lee she had been at netscape uh she had gone to another startup it was not doing especially well she found her way to paypal so she's somebody who comes in with a little bit of experience compare that profile of person with someone like David Sachs, right? So David like leaves law school, goes to McKinsey and company, and he and Peter are in touch because they are friendly, but David does not some, you know, product person. He's somebody who's working at McKinsey and is a, is a kind of corporate strategy person and joins the company because his friend Peter is, is, is doing it, right? Not because he has some specialized knowledge or, or capability. And so I, I do think there's a mix of this, I, you know, to more precisely answer your question, <clears throat> this is a small group of people who go through a very intense experience together over the course of between two and four years, depending on who the individual is. They are, it's very hard work, but they are ultimately successful and they emerge from that success just as the dot-com bust has ended and the next generation of web companies is coming into being. Right. And so they, they sort of got through the, the worst of this 
right? And then emerged and said, oh, like, we still believe in this. Like, we don't think the internet's a fad, <laughs> right? And they don't have, you know, insane sums of money, but they have collectively some amount of wealth they've created. That wealth is put back into different ventures, whether that's Yelp or Slide or et cetera, right? So you, you, you could interpret that many different ways, right? Like you could say, oh, like they were lucky. Eh, I think luck's a part of the story for sure. I think timing matters as in like all things in life. And I definitely write about the role of luck at the very, very, very end. Not because I believe it, but because other people in the story told me don't minimize the importance of luck, right? So it was like a board member as well as a gentleman named Jack Selby and others who said, look, we were really fortunate. Above all else, we're very fortunate and please don't discount that fortune. There's also a part of it where, you know, it's important that you had a, a, an inaugural CEO on the X.com side like Elon, an inaugural CEO like Peter on the Confinity side, and an inaugural CTO in Max Levchin. And I'll explain why. Because not, not, the three of them are not going to hire people who cannot operate at the level that they operate, right? Not in the same ways, but part of what I discovered in, in researching this story is the high bar that was placed on uh, aggressiveness, hard work, intellect, puzzle solving, a, a kind of disposition to want to find the answer, right, as opposed to leaning on experience. And so you, you have three leaders who do set the tone for their respective organizations. But let me be clear, though, that doesn't mean that they're hiring just lookalike people, right? There are plenty of people in this story who don't, who don't, um, it, it, there's a lot of heterodoxy. There's a lot of like differences and differences of opinion too that come out in pretty profound ways. But it does mean that when you are trying to recruit, you know, Peter is biased in the direction of like intelligent, interesting people. Max, when it comes to engineering, like he, he knows his stuff and is hiring people who are at his level as well. And so you don't, you know, I found again and again that actually the company had remarkably low turnover for over its four years. Like meaning once you got in, there wasn't actually, there weren't actually a whole bunch of like insane departures, laying off 30% of the workforce, that kind of stuff. Like people stuck around for a while. It didn't mean that there weren't people who left of their own volition. But you have three leaders who set the tone for a very, a culture of intelligence and intensity and like kind of that, that piece of it. The last thing I would say is, um, this group, in looking back at it, and I can only do this from the comfort of like 20 years removed, right? They learned a way of operating and a way of very fast problem solving that's easy to take as like Silicon Valley table stakes. Like somebody might look at that and say, well, yeah, that's how all startups operate. Well, except that plenty of startups didn't succeed in this way and they didn't figure out fraud and they didn't figure out a revenue model and they didn't figure out how to manage a relationship with Visa where you kind of could keep them at arm's length, but they didn't shut you down. They didn't navigate the eBay relationship. There were other payment services companies that were launched that had eBay users that did not succeed in this way. And so I think there was this focus on very rapid problem solving that was a part of the place. Some of that was deliberate. You know, you have David Sachs who like sets the tone for how quickly the company needs to ship products and like he's very, he's very intense, right? Um, you also have the sense that they're running out of money. So it's either that or they're gonna go the way of pets.com, right? 
I, all of that taken together is the reason that I think this group is special, and it's the reason that I thought the story was worth telling. But it's not, I don't think you can say it's one thing. Like, there are all these people who are like, oh, it's a focus on the product. And I'm like, well, yeah, it's also that you closed $100 million in March, right? Like, a couple of weeks before the bottom falls out on the market. And so I, and that's why, like, what I try to do in the picture, in the, in the story is not, I, I kind of deliberately and perhaps disappointingly, like, can't say that there are, like, the five lessons. I tried to cover some of the learnings, but I think you have, we have to be careful in ascribing too much to, like, well, here are the four specific things. I do think that entrepreneurs who read the book will get something out of it that'll help them, whether it's recruiting or tone, a culture, uh, problem solving, how to hire, who to hire. But I don't want to make it too explicit because I think of this as like a sui generis story, right? That, that like, actually like it, it exists on its own merits. Yeah. No, this is, I, I love, there's so much to dig into. And one thing that I did love about the book is it's very much not, okay, here's this great company, this great exit, and um, here's the five things you have to do to just replicate this, right? There's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of moments. Frankly, so when I put the book down, I was like, there's, there's so much here, but the lessons are very nuanced, and I'm still surprised that it happened this way and that it survived. Mm. And it, because there were so, it seems to me there were so many times when I mean, you mentioned timing, right? And there's this moment when I guess it's it's early 2000 and, and they're trying to raise the Series C or something and, and Peter Thiel is just like, close this thing, get the money in the bank, sign it. Like this thing, like the, the market could topple over it anymore. So if you don't push for that and if you miss that, um, but I wanted to read out, there was a, a really good quote um, where it's like, PayPal started off as a product with no use case. Then we had a use case, but no business model. Then we had to build a sustainable business. And it strikes me, right, that you, it, you, you emphasize all this iteration and how there's also resistance to the iteration because people are invested um, to the old product, like the, you know, the, the, the Palm Pilot or whatever. Like, talk me through a little bit, like, how kind of the, the arc of these iterations and how that got resolved when, when people, like, you know, build the max code and people were, like, scared to touch the max code and, like, make certain changes. Like, how did that... Um, you know, how, how do you think about that? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, that's one of my favorite quotes in the book, actually. It's from Amy Rowe Clement. I can, I remember it because I remember thinking when she said it out loud, I just remember thinking, oh my God, that is like the best three sentence <laughs> description of the entire thing, right? Yeah. Like if, if someone had a gun to my head and said, just pick one, like one quote to describe the whole experience, it'd be Amy's quote, which is like literally that. So you picked up on the one quote where I'm like, that's the distilled essence of the, the business part of the PayPal story, right? Um, and by the way, it makes sense. She's she's brilliant and just was was a was a huge leader who never got credit. I'm I was overjoyed when she finally agreed to sit down with me. Um, I I, th I think of her as one of the great unheralded figures, and those aren't again those aren't even my words. Like Elon himself said, she is an unsung hero in the story. Um, and by the way, true to form, joins on a lark, like was interviewing, was about to go to grad school and, and got a call from an old banking contact who invited her to come and interview. And so it's not like she had a plan to kind of become, uh, you know, a really visionary product leader at PayPal. She was about to go to graduate school. Um, so to take a step back, you know, I think there is a, a, it's a really delicate and almost difficult balance in the product that they create initially and getting that to a place where it's the it's payment transfer and what PayPal fundamentally becomes is essentially like a credit card master merchant, right? 
a credit card master merchant for low dollar transactions on eBay is effectively what the business is for a big period of time. Um, your, your question isn't, let me, let me answer the question in this way, which is, I hope what people walk away with is a real keen sense for the 10, for the, the, the tensions that led to the product improvements. I'll give you an, I'll clear example. So we're not speaking in abstractions, you know, there's a moment when the product launches in 1999. Confinity, which is the company that creates the PayPal product, so it's not called PayPal, it's called Confinity. Confinity is founded by Max Legend and Peter Thiel. They decide that the thing that they're going to really promote to the public is Palm Pilot money beaming. So the infrared ports on Palm Pilots, they wanted to do encrypted transfers over the airwaves. They launched that product. It's a press success because it's kind of new and it's interesting, but it doesn't really strike sparks because it's an odd and somewhat limited use case for like you'd have your your ceiling is Palm Pilot owners, and then beneath that, it's like Palm Pilot owners would rather infrared money beam each other than use cash, right? So there's this summer, there's this period in the summer where there's a lot of uncertainty, which is like, what is this thing going to be? And you have, this is a, an example, and, and I really drilled into this to, to really understand. I talked to as many people as I could. There's a late night kind of debate session, like a meeting, right? And there's an early board member who's then a, sort of an unknown guy named Reed Hoffman, right? Um, Reed and Peter are friends from Stanford. And Reed is really insistent that, that the Palm Pilot product like, has this ceiling. It's not, it's not going to work. This is like, and he even describes it he, in, in playing it back to me. He said, you know, if you walked into a restaurant, like what is even the possibility of a use case in a Palo Alto restaurant? Like how many people are going to have Palm Pilots? And then how many of those people are going to have your app installed? And then how many people, how many people who have Palm Pilots have the app installed would rather beam money than hand $10 to the next person, right? And his line, which is actually the chapter title is like, you're hosed on this idea. So the chapter title is called hosed. So he says to Max, like you're hosed on this idea. Then he points out a sort of obvious criticism. What if I have everything, but I just forgot my Palm Pilot at the office, right? Like I just left it there. This wasn't the era of iPhones where it's like essentially like my iPhone may as well be glued to my hand, right? So he says, what if you forget your Palm Pilot? Max says, well, look, we have to, we have, to have the plumbing for the transfers anyway. What if I just built like an email like companion so that you could email the money if you need it, right? That that afterthought, the, the backup solution becomes the company's core product, but it's not an easy path to get there. So I, what I just described is call it the Eureka moment, right? Like the moment where Max says, well, I'll just create an email backup product. But it's still many, many, many steps from there to making it what PayPal is today, where I can email you money really efficiently, effectively, securely, et cetera. So it's, it's, there's tension, right? It's, it's, it's Reed Hoffman saying, you're, you're hosed, right? And then Max having to respond to that tension and say, well, what if we did this backup so that somebody forgets their Palm Pilot? But even he said, when he started to, when he, actually he said two things that were interesting. One is he said, after he created the emailing component, he started using it himself to test like the transaction process. And, and, and there was a quote later in a different place where he says, that should have been a clue, like the <laughs> fact that I was using it, right? Um, but even when they find that the product is being successfully used on eBay, he makes moves to prevent that success. Like 
tries to block the IP addresses so that users on eBay can't use PayPal's products. And that's where other people who are in the room and on the board step in, right? Uh, David Sachs is really insistent that this is product market fit. You have, you know, Max obviously comes around. He's a smart guy, right? Um, the board says, like, this is like, you have hundreds of people on eBay who are using your product. Like, this is, you know, so there's a range of voices by that point. But it's important for people to remember that it wasn't just that, like, Max Levchin is very smart, comes up with emailing money, Peter invests, becomes CEO, great, the company goes public. Like, I, I, think, I think we have a tendency, the reason I wrote the book is because the tendency was to overlook PayPal and just like write it off as like, it was naturally gonna be a success, right? No, it actually, it really wasn't. In fact, they, the, when they announced the Palm Pilot money beaming idea, I didn't even write this in the book. There was an article, I should have, I think, now that I think about it, I'm like, I need to edit this. Um, <laughs> There was a magazine that called it one of the 10 worst business ideas of 1999. Really? Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be clear, too, they were laughed out of countless venture capital offices hmm. and like, like everybody's mocking them for this thing. Even, I mean, honestly, even Elon, like, who, you know, they end up merging. But at the beginning, he was like, oh, they're doomed. His line yeah. to me was like, <laughs> they're doomed. Like that money beaming, come on. Um, and it was, it was funny about it. I, but I think that's like that is important to remember that the iterations resulted from tension and that tension affected everything from fraud to customer service to the initial you know changes to the product that made it successful and i i think of that process as something that deserves to be better understood because it it means tension is not a negative if if you have that kind of like contest within an organization it could be that you are on the cusp of something actually very, very important. This is, yeah, this is really interesting. Um, and I, so I came away and I guess credit to you as an, as an author for communicating this well, but like I came away with the same idea of there's this culture of truth searching and friction and debate. And um, I think Max later said like he tried to reduce the anger in the subsequent startup and he was like, no, mm. that was the wrong idea. Like actually it's like th this tension with respect for the other person's intellectual capacity is actually a good thing. However, you also write, and this comes to when they sell the company, right? People walk away with what they call PayPal PTSD, right? And there's just <laughs> yeah. sort of, there seems to be the sense of just sheer exhaustion. And they're like, we got to sell this now. We can't keep up at this pace. And people are sleeping at the office and whatever. Um, so, so highlight maybe a little bit kind of how people think about this in, in retrospect, like both the, I guess, the positive of this culture of, tension and debate and, and what it can accomplish, but also like the, the cost or like how, whether it's a sustainable model and like how you think about kind of that culture. Yeah, it's, and, and I don't, I don't actually know that, that even looking back at it with all the time that I spent studying it, that there's going to be a uniform answer because I think the answer depends on the individual. Right. Um, and, and there's a part of it that it, there's a part of it that is just a, a kind of, Okay, you, you create a company, it has an unexpected success, but your success is dependent on surviving the dot-com boom, the enormous number of fraud, I'm sorry, the dot-com bust, the enormous number of fraudsters on your platform, the fact that you built your company atop a third party that is constantly trying to like throw sand in the gears. And then to add to that, like you're doing what Visa and MasterCard and Discover should have done. You're, you're a master merchant. All You're a clearinghouse for this, right? And you have like the most 
intense personalities in the world. Like, I think that's a fair statement to make, like in the room while doing this, right? So there's no way that this company was ever going to look like a Zen garden. Like, it's just <laughs> never going to happen, right? I mean, come on. Like, it's like the, the yeah. most. And by the way, the other, the other part of it that's important, and I had a couple of people play this back to me, you know, it was encouraged to, to, to call people out. Like, it was a little bit of a culture of if you're like Jeremy Salbman said to me, like he had, or, and he had said in a couple other places, it was not just to me. He had, and, and I talked to him about it and, you know, he said, I like once sent an email, like flaming the entire executive team for something. And I sort of got like, like a pat on the back, like, Oh, thanks. Like, that's great. You know? And I, I have, I didn't. I didn't want to go back and like rehash too much of that. But I have this really interesting moment where they're debating sixty-day authorizations on debit cards. It's smack in the middle of the book because I wanted people to get a feel for like what does it mean if you have a culture that is that critical. And there are these like super snarky emails. And I remember I actually read like forty pages of threads uh, that were just like printed out. Like, and I was highlighting, and I was like, I can't believe they would speak to each other this way on email, right? But it's and it's a debate not over like you know, some great moral crisis. It's a debate over 60-day authorizations about credit cards. And this person goes, if you cared to attend any of the meetings, you would understand. I love, yes, that was fantastic. It was like the most unbelievable, like, and this is all with like multiple colleagues on threads. So, so that's the side of it that is like, it was encouraged. Now, I think I document pretty well, like that culture also has, like, you don't, you don't emerge from that, you know, necessarily feeling like, feeling great you know i mean like there's plenty of people who for whatever reason whether they're just like they don't have that streak in them they're not going to be that snarky or if they're just more mild-mannered personalities they maybe don't want to dive in in that way so it wasn't a great experience for everyone i think the other thing is there was an expectation that everybody was going to be at the office all the time and a part of that was that the culture skewed young it and the people that they would have been socializing anyway happened to work at the company so it was like there was nowhere else to go Right. And not like it's like you'd be there anyway. And then a lot of it was organized around video games. And so you were at the office late because you're playing video games. But then, you know, if you're theoretically, not theoretically, I interviewed people. They were parents. Parents felt this weird tension of like, wait, if I go home, am I going to miss something? And then if I miss it, like, did I miss something important or did I just like miss video game time? Right. And then how do you balance that with family responsibilities? The company got better as it grew larger by necessity, you know, it had to, but it was never an easy place for people to work. Hence, I had a couple of people comment about like PayPal PTSD, meaning that in the aftermath, they were like, oh boy, I don't want to do that again. Right. The other way that I would say that that phrase applies is that um, there was some reluctance to dive into payments. So payments are a very tricky business to make work. And I come away with a real, you know, a much keener appreciation for how hard it is to achieve scale, network effects, security, like everything, the interfacing with different financial institutions is enormously hard. It's enormously hard. And I think anybody that sort of minimizes the PayPal story, like, well, yeah, of course they did payments. They were successful. Has no idea how many competitors there were, how many other alternatives there were. It's why I think like, the cryptocurrency space, despite being in its infancy, like people, I, I don't think people understand how hard it is to make brand new payment rails work, right? Um, particularly in this era where a lot of legislation around digital money transfer is still like years away, right? 
And so, so that's where the PTSD piece also comes from is that payments were really difficult. And part of what Max and others have commented on in the aftermath is that they're pretty careful, but when they invest in anything payments related, cause they're like, we know how, we know exactly how hard it is. Right. Um, and, it, but, but your point your, to your, to the point of your question, which is about culture. And I, I did notice it. I, I noticed even in my personal interactions with call it like the the folks who aren't going to make the front pages there was a a healthy almost like like it's like an aggressiveness or like a kind of like no i'm going to make sure you really understand it right um and and almost like a a, a testing of the individual <laughs> actually it's funny he makes the front pages all the time so this is probably not a good example but i remember in my first email to elon i was introduced to him by luke nosick and he writes back with basically like, I was, I was a little surprised when Luke told me about the book. This is a pretty old story at this point, right? And that's like his first response to me. He's essentially saying like, prove to me why this, like I could tell, I was like, prove to me why this is valuable, right? And so you have, you have a little bit of that. I got that in, in other settings where I would say a statement or a sentence and someone would say, no, 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 you're wrong. Like, here's why you're wrong, right? So there was a way in which they were, they were there was enough respect I, I also think that some of that can only be looked at with hindsight. I imagine in the moment for a lot of people, it, and I, actually, I know that it felt tough and, and sometimes rude and abrasive and all the negative parts of it. But Max is not wrong in his observation that actually, like, if you are unable to say something without worrying about offending someone else, meaning if, if people don't feel like they're battling over ideas, if they feel like what they're doing is being offended personally, if their idea is attacked, that creates a culture where you get a lot of, of backbiting and like behind the scenes things, as opposed to PayPal, where like you could flame a colleague about 60 day authorizations or debit cards on an email thread and it was okay, right? Or it would be okay later. Um, there's one other thing we didn't talk about, that, that the reason that all of this makes sense in some ways is an observation that there's a gentleman named George Ishii. He made this observation, but Sky Lee did too at the very end of the book. They had huge opponents massive publicly traded opponents who were out to get them. And so what unified the team was a common enemy and a common threat. And, and that's actually, Sky makes that observation directly. She said, you know, nothing unifies a team like a mortal enemy. And in that case, she's speaking about eBay, but they had attorneys general, they had competitors, they had fraudsters, they had a series of opponents. And I'm not, in a place to say whether that's like good, bad, or ugly for all startups or whether you can make that a kind of comprehensive thing. But I can tell you that at PayPal, the fact that there was an opposition brought out the team's best work. I thought that was a really, I thought that was interesting. I just didn't expect it going in. Yeah, like, again, it comes, like, it comes back to, I'm like, how did this, how did this actually survive? Right? There's so many times, right? and you make it clear, like the challenges come from all kinds of directions. Um, and now I'm like trying to figure out which one. Okay, so let's, one thing I want to tack onto culture before I want to, okay. So the way I read it, there's basically three coups, um, two, <laughs> yeah. two actual ones, but so right, there's, there's the one obvious. One attempted coup and two actual coups. There's the, yeah. the, there's the obvious one kicking, uh, Peter taking over for, for Elon. Then there's the one mm -hmm. where they, um, where Harris gets kicked out. But Harris yeah. When the when they're trying to merge Confinity and X.com, right? Um, Elon is kind of 
a little bit hesitant and he's trying to build the financial supermarket not just payments and and so and then harris is like um no i'm gonna quit right if we don't do this and elon is like you're basically telling me you're gonna crash this company because ceo quitting we need we need money right now so that seems like sort of a really confrontational and so and and i was just surprised and you made this clear that people you know afterwards obviously funded each other and talked to each other but like Talk to me a little bit about just this this dynamic and how maybe the the confrontational nature sometimes just channeled it in, into I don't know if, I don't know how you think about this this dynamic, but I thought it was really unusual. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't. Again, I, it's um, the fact that the, so so what people have reminded me is that Silicon Valley has a history of of pretty rough coups, right? Like it's not this is not we we tend to pretend like oh because it's this is code. That there's not going to be humanity and like Shakespeare, Shakespeare level like deception and martial arts in the background, but that's true of all in human institutions, right? I, 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 I'm betting that if you were to write the story of Pfizer over the last three years, it's going to look more like Shakespeare than it is like science, right? Like I can guarantee you that there's stuff there, and and that it's. But I, I tried not to turn the whole story into the like to do, to tell that part of it without talking about the substance of the disagreements is to do a disservice to the story because the truth is like the reason that Max and Peter and their sort of side of the company clashed with uh, Elon is because of a difference of founder vision. It wasn't, wasn't personal. It was Elon wanted to build X.com into a financial services superstore. The other side of the company felt like that's a big vision at a hard time. We're running out of money because of fraud and because we have, you know, overhead, and we're doing bonuses. We don't have much money left. The market's cratering. A $12.5 million burn rate against $60 million or so in funding is only going to last you X amount of time, and it's not going to last you long enough to, to do the financial services superstore. Peter acknowledged to me, he said, you know, you do have to give credit to Elon for having the biggest vision of what the company could have become, meaning that if the role, if the situation were different and maybe there were a longer runway, or there were some other dynamics that worked in their favor that maybe, maybe you could have turned like that vision into a reality. But at the time, the concern was we're going to run out of money, whether or not like that vision, like, like we're going to, we're just going to, the burn rate's too high. And they were facing a few different crises that I kind of outlined in the, in the book and some ch- technological changes that some of the team disagreed with. But I, I think that like, these are substantive differences but at the time, the only resolution that some of these people felt like was appropriate was to threaten mass resignation and to oust the CEO, right? And, and I don't, I mean, I'm not in a place to say like, was that right, wrong? Otherwise, I document what it is, right? And I also, I try to, I also try to give Elon time to kind of explain what he learned from it. Um, the way I think about the different moments that seem like, like they're like unusually aggressive is we have to remember the context in which both of those coups took place, which is, this is post-March 2000. So the company has closed a big round of funding, but it is also a bigger company now because of the merger. They have customer service issues. They have government issues. They have fraud issues. They have technology issues, downtime issues, and they've been told by members of the board that the that they're not going to raise another nine figure round of funding because the money is drying up because 
high flying tech stocks are starting to bring the market down, et cetera, et cetera. So if you, if we were to talk about it today, it seems a little bit like, oh my God, why would they, why would it feel like you, the, the situation was so desperate that you needed to threaten resignation in order to make a change? When in truth, at the time, if you are reading, this is pardon the French, but like there's a website called Fucked Company, right? Which became a book actually called Fucked Company. And it was like this document of all the uh, misadventures from the dot-com era. If you're waking up every day and you are reading Fucked Company and every day the list of companies that goes going under gets longer and longer and longer and the drama gets bigger and bigger and bigger, then you could see a universe in which you say to yourself, wow, if we don't force the board to make a change with the CEO and the strategy, we're not, we're going to die. And that's, and the, actually, it's really funny. One of the funny things I realized only after finishing the book is the number of times the word die appears. In the book. <laughs> like, like die comes up over and over. It's like a, like a really, like, you know, it, it comes up over and over again because people felt that way. Like they felt that kind of urgency, this sort of, oh my God, if I don't fix this, we're done. And so in that context, mass resignation maybe doesn't seem so outlandish anymore, right? And that's why there are two episodes in which there are sort of threats of mass resignation leading to an ouster of a CEO. Um, I try, yeah, like I try to present both sides in, in, in those cases. And I don't know that I'm like in a place to cast judgments one way or the other. I did try to portray the facts and I had the benefit of, I didn't just speak to Max and Peter about the coup. I spoke to Elon about the coup and he learned a lot from it. And like observed in in hindsight you know his he sort of laughed and he was like it's slightly complimentary that they would only do the coup while i'm not there yeah, so he had yeah, some yeah. humor about it i think the other thing is that historically you know his his own engineers pointed out like wow if he hadn't if that hadn't happened it's possible that he would have st not either started later or not started at all the two companies that today are kind of his cornerstone you know two of his cornerstone achievements mm. Yeah, which kind of comes back a little bit to timing, right? I think at the end, Peter, I don't remember, maybe it was Peter, but he kind of says like, yeah, three years later, you could have start, couldn't have started that same company, right? Like the, and and same maybe for, yeah, but but um, so this this, it's funny because this this life and death urgency really comes through in the book, and you towards the end, um, you write. Uh, okay, I'm just going to read this out for one second. Like, from one angle, PayPal's success was an exercise in careful hedging as much as it was in innovating. And the sale to eBay was simply the last hedge. And which comes back to, I guess, um, I mean, obviously, like fraud, there's, there's, there's things where do, they do very obvious risk mitigation, but then there's also like the, the, the raising the capital or like um, the, uh, you know, telling eBay all the time, like, oh, you're, you're kind of in a, you should, you should worry about antitrust. Like, like there's all of these, these smart little things. T tell me about these risk, like, tell me about this risk mitigation and how they thought about this survival and like where it came into play. Yeah, it's, um, the risk mitigation is, so, so if you think about the decision to sell to eBay, right? It's not, widely it, it's a it for for a lot of employees you know there were differences of opinion at the time about whether this was the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do but part of what i tried to understand like having the benefit of some distance and some some hindsight with it is if you look at the company's different maneuvers right they're really a way of like reducing risk so fighting fraud is a way of reducing the risk of fraud 
cutting bonus payments is a way of reducing financial risk from giving away bonus payments. Setting up tools like the CAPTCHA or um, random deposit is a way of reducing the risk of unsavory customers, right? Or like of, 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 addition, of some additional fraud reduction. Um, reducing the X.com product suite, avoiding mortgages, credit lines, every, stocks and bond, everything else is a way of reducing the risk that those things are going to bring you under. And, and from that perspective, right, you have this big success. And then what you need to do is carefully calibrate the risk so that you can balance risk with growth. Big part of the PayPal story is the is what well, it's what Peter called the dials, but I would just say it's like the, the balance between risk and growth. How do you take enough risk so that you grow, but don't grow so fast that the risk overwhelms you? This is the great the graveyard of payment systems is littered with stories of companies that did not manage those two variables correctly, right? And so to me, the the one of the most interesting things is I had the board minutes. This was really cool. Oh man, talk about nuggets. Talk about Wait, talk about what? nuggets. Okay, repeat yeah. that. So I had I had the board minutes for the several weeks up to the vote for the acquisition. So it's one so like okay, let me give you kind of the big context. You you could talk to employees about the for and against for the eBay acquisition and they have their reasons. And by the way, I document those reasons. They're very good reasons. I would say particularly Catherine Wu has this amazing paragraph she gives me about the the reason the best reason for the acquisition by eBay. But I also had board minutes where I could look at like, what is the board thinking and what are the key players thinking about this acquisition? Who is for, who is against, but more importantly, like what are the, what's the rationale? What's in the room? The, the, there's one set of board minutes just before the, uh, just before the acquisition where Peter and, and team and the board are looking at like, okay, let's list like all of the risks that face this business and why this is essential. And whoever was noting or taking the, the board minutes did a remarkable job from my perspective because I have this catalog. I think it's like nine or 10 bullets of all of the risks that the business faces, right? Like here's everything we face. And I took that and I copied it and I put it in the book just so everyone could see the document that they were seeing or the thought set of thoughts that they were thinking at the time because in spite of the company being successful, in spite of it having achieved profitability, in spite of it going public, so it went public in February, mid-February 2002, the document that I cite from just months later is literally enumerating the threats to the business that still exist. And the biggest of those threats is that eBay could decide, eBay, which still services at that point still more than half of PayPal's customers and, and transaction volume came from eBay, they could decide or figure out a way to move away from PayPal and move towards something else. From that perspective, when you look at those risks, the best decision available was to find a way to make, uh, make an acquisition by eBay possible, which is what the executive team at PayPal did, and it is what the executives at eBay agreed to, and it all, you know, it worked out well for everyone. But that, to me, it was, I, I, when I look back at it, I'm like, it's not, it's not, an exercise of like each step is innovative, but there's also like, once you have innovation, I'm gonna do a bad job describing this. So this is like not to be quoted because I'm not, I'm not like a business expert. I wrote, you know, this story, but you have an innovation and it opens up a lot of opportunity, but then it also opens up risk. And, and in a way, like what PayPal did really well 
was take advantage of the opportunity and minimize the risk. In 2002, they have huge opportunity, but the biggest risk, which is eBay turns them off, could actually tank the business. It can actually reduce the value of everyone's equity to nothing. And so at that point, you, you have to make this. The other, the other part of this is important to remember is people act like the decision to sell to eBay was, I don't know, faintly emotional. There might have been some emotion in it, but you have to remember who's in the room. You know, these are savvy operators. Tim Hurd, like from Madison Dearborn, John Malloy, uh, Mike Moritz, Elon, Peter, Max, David Sachs. You know, these, these people are like, like really thinking through this. They also, to their credit, go and ask the employees. Like they actually go and ask. They are, they, I had an employee tell me, Sky Lee told me, David Sachs sat us down, sort of said like, hey, listen, we're thinking about this, like this sale to eBay. And she played back to me. She said, I was ready. She's like, I was done. I was fried, right? So, so I think, I hope that answers the question about risk mitigation because you will see the risks enumerated. And it wasn't until, by the way, it wasn't until I saw the risks enumerated that I could even come up with that idea. That like actually this whole business, once it had its initial moment of wide open space, was actually about like carefully managing risks. Um, at one point, I actually wanted to call the book Empire of Risk. <laughs> That was a draft. That was a draft. Very bad title, and I'm glad I abandoned it. <laughs> it's it's um well, it's very funny. I, I think because it, intuitively, I think like oh, it's a startup, so obviously it's highly risky, and like we we all know like a lot of them fail, and and so but but then you have what's interesting is you have this rich cast of characters, and as you just pointed out, you put them all into a room, and they're all very thoughtful, and they they clash, and in yeah. that culture of your debate, you get to see all of these different perspectives. Um, I want to close it out with, um, in the afterword, you write, and I guess this is dedicated to your daughter, but you, you write something like, the, your life will be shaped by the things you create and the people you make them with. We don't worry mm -hmm. enough about the latter. And the story of PayPal is about how banding together shaped the people themselves. And it strikes me, right? So, so they all go off and, and I think in, you hint at some of the lessons, right? Like Elon learned some things. I wonder if being in the shadow of eBay as the monopoly possibly crushing the business sort of shaped Peter Thiel's philosophy of, you know, he, he wrote later about the importance of kind of navigating around, uh, like finding a spot with, with little competition. I'm, I'm curious how you think about the major sort of things that, that this group of people that were shaped by this experience, what, what they came away with and what they really, you know, um, you know, took with them for the second book also that, that I, I don't know if you're going to write yeah, it, but like, yes. To be, no, no, that's beyond, I think it's beyond my, my scope and my expertise. So I'll leave it for other people to do. Um, you know, I, I, here, here's the big asterisk on this and, and it, and it maybe even says the subject of a second conversation because I tried in my own way to ask each person this exact question. What did you take from this experience? And I think the answers were as varied and interesting as the people themselves. And so it, 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 you, you know, you sort of, you could talk to a Max and then you could talk to a Reed and you're going to get two very different answers to that question. And so I will, that's the disclaimer is like, there's a multiplicity of, you know, there's like endless answers to the, to the question in some ways. Um, but the few that I found were, that were really, that to me stood out, one was there was a tendency at this time to focus on like the product, the product, the product, but not to do any rigor around, or not as much rigor around distribution. So one of the things that the group of people that work at this company really get good at is distribution because they, especially in 1999 and early 2000, have to think 
crazily about distribution. And so that, I, you know, that is, uh, let's, let's apply it just so people don't think I'm just like, they're like, oh, he's faking it or whatever. When YouTube, when the co-founders of YouTube, who are PayPal alumni, are trying to worm their product onto MySpace pages, remember MySpace? They're trying to worm these little YouTube videos onto MySpace pages. I believe I have the story right that at one point MySpace realized this and tried to cut off like people from using YouTube videos. So what the YouTube people did was they posted like the official corporate number for MySpace and like got people who are users to call in and complain until it was like reactivated, which is basically like a straight page from the PayPal play eBay playbook, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But more, but more than that, the YouTube product itself, part of its great success is the fact that it's so embeddable. It's look, it survives to this day as as a lightweight mechanism for embedding videos that I, to my mind has like yet to be surpassed in that same fashion, right? Meaning just ubiquity, length, quality, etc. That the PayPal button like is where a lot of these people cut their teeth in understanding product distribution on the internet in that way. And there was at the time a lot of literature that I went back and read about, well, it's a product, a product, a product. It'll distribute itself. Like if you have good enough, it'll distribute itself. You're going to have word of mouth, et cetera. And it was like, well, yes, except <laughs> that if you're facing off against eBay and your product is literally a parasite on their webpage, you've got to think really deliberately about how you're going to get anybody to use this thing, right? PayPal also has the experience of having to expand its distribution to markets outside of eBay as a way of hedging against the risk. So they expand into gambling, they expand into pornography, and you know, some other places that, but, but you have the challenge or the lessons of product distribution, not just product. Really, really important. I think it's one of the key things that this, this group walked away with. I would say the second thing is a little bit more general, but it's still applicable. Eric Klein, who's an early engineer, a friend of Max's, went to University of Illinois Champaign-Urbana, then joined PayPal. Um, Eric was a phenomenal interview for me because he's not someone who, you know, he's not like somebody who's like world famous and isn't chasing press. Um, he had this great line. He said, you know, it, PayPal taught me to invent instead of research and implement. And he said that even when I'm in stand, technical standups today, I have this, like, I, this instinct to like, well, how can we, his, his question, which is on the page, I think it's in chapter three or four, is maybe, maybe five, uh, is, how do I invent my way out of this, right? What an what a interesting way of, of not just looking at engineering problems, but it's sort of at the world. Meaning it's one thing to go and Google and find an answer and then apply it, but it's another to actually begin from a place where you're saying, what if we started from scratch? Like, what if we invented our way out of this, right? And, and I don't, again, I don't think it applies in every scenario, but I have seen that, that this, there's a, there's a tendency, it's almost, it's almost like you have to dismiss everything else that's out there and then decide that you're going to do it from scratch but think about what spacex is spacex is a gigantic dismissal of the of the private sector like defense contracting apparatus and and like you you literally have to say like everyone else is doing it wrong we're going to start from scratch we're going to start from first principles and here's why it'll succeed right and again i don't i don't i'm not trying to apply it in a in a no, but I in a sophomoric yeah, I way, but you get my point that like actually like invention instead of research and application is a really interesting way to approach things. So that's kind of sort of big takeaway number two. I would say big takeaway number three, and this is maybe the hardest one to get right. You, 
you need people who come from very different perspectives and you need them to be able to respectfully disagree with you with each other at a very high level. So, I, you know, I, I was, I read so much like of the internal email and documents and things that were shared with me. And I can tell you that like, this was not a place for the faint of heart. It was a place with really high IQ points and a lot of just like very intense battling over ideas. Building a team that has the capacity to do that strikes me as one of the hardest things to do in business because it requires a few things. One, you have to be courageous enough to walk into a room with David Sachs and tell him that he's wrong, which is not easy, right? As played back to me by multiple employees, that's not easy. The second is you have to actually think very hard about what the right answer is in a given context, not what you think about the person presenting the idea, right? So you actually have to think about like the idea itself, not like I don't like Joe, right? You have to think about Joe's idea, right? And then the third thing is you have to do this despite the fact that the person that you're talking to might be a subordinate or might be three levels above you. Meaning it has to be done in some way irrespective of hierarchy because the thing you care about is actually the idea. And I think we are human beings and thus are very like, we, we have a tendency to slouch in the direction of hierarchy, like absent other things. But there's a reason that I had an interview with a, an early, he was, ended up being very early at Palantir, but he was uh, an intern at PayPal named Bob McGrew. And Bob said to me, like, I came up with a better way to manage the master password at PayPal. And I remember like bringing it into Max and being like, we should manage our passwords this way, right? And he's an intern at the company. This is the most sensitive information of the, at the company. And he's the one saying, this is a better way to do it. And Max says, Max, uh, he played it back to me. He said, Max said, yeah, that was good. Let's go with that. Um, that's that thing I just described. I don't, I I'm not the person to tell people how to do it, but I think it's the, the, the part of the secret sauce is a group of employees that are able to engage on ideas in this way at this level with this kind of intensity, but do so with at least a modicum of respect. Um, I think it's enormously hard. Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't even connect because there, there are a number of instances where you point out in the book that people who are either very new to the organization or some with junior or both, right, and very quickly get handled a lot of responsibility or just where the trust level seems very high. It's like, oh, you're part of the team now. And, and this one part, like one of them, I guess, brings down the website for for a short amount of time and like one of them has access to like just like very crucial data and he's and and there's like these quotes where people are like i couldn't believe that they gave me this level of access or trust very quickly and i'm wondering like is so is that i mean there's obviously something culturally there is that also because you think the recruitment process was so intense that once somebody stepped into the door they were like you're part of the family now like because it this does seem like it, it does pop out a number of times where people are like, I can't believe they so quickly trusted me to to handle this or like gave me room to experiment or, or you know, like and like. Yeah, I, I you know, I, my answer, I think, is going to be imprecise at best, but I think it's a little of both. It's it's a it's you're drawn to a culture like this if you are a specific kind of person and you're also in a culture that reinforces certain tendencies. So let's talk about the former piece first. The engineer, actually, that, that you mentioned that you sort of quoted him was Santos Gennardin comes in and he like 
has this immediate trust. They give him the root password for the site. He's asked to go look around and sort of familiarize himself. This is on his first day of work. And the site has a little blip and they come over and they kind of say like, hey, did you take the site down? He's like, no, I didn't do that. And they would just walk away. They just trusted him, right? Even as a junior engineer. He remember thinking this was really remarkable. The other part of it is that by the point that Santos joins the company, he's interviewed with so many people. There's like a lot of like very smart people interviewing him. And I didn't put this in the book, but when he returned home to his wife, he actually had several job offers. So this is an interesting story. So he has several job offers. The job offer that pays the least is the PayPal job offer. And, and he's somebody who has like student, he's not, he has student loans, you know, he's an immigrant, like he's an immigrant, like he's not, he, it's not well to do, right? And he comes home and tells his wife he, he wants to take and has to take the PayPal offer. And she says, well, look, like, come on, like we've got bills to pay and like their offers way lower than these other places. And he says to her, everyone I interviewed with is smarter than me. And I'm going to, I may not make as much money, but I'm going to learn a lot there. Right. And like, and, and I think he was blown away by the quality of engineering talent enough that at a time, a difficult moment in his life, he's willing to take a lower offer on compensation. Right. And, and maybe there are other factors there. Maybe he was like, well, maybe the equity, I don't know, but, but his description of it, which was very dollars and cents, and he's not joining as the CTO, he's joining as a pretty junior engineer. He said, I knew I would learn something. And it was the lowest offer that of the four or five that he had. And so it takes a certain kind of person to want to prioritize the intelligence of the group as opposed to like the biweekly check that you're going to get and be okay with a little bit of a lower biweekly check if you want to, you know, join this team that's going to have you pull, you know, step up your game. By the way, Santos now like oversees infrastructure at Meta, uh, you know, and, and he had the same experience when he left Google to join Facebook and interviewed with Mark Zuckerberg himself in in Facebook's very early days and said essentially the same thing to his wife, which was, I know this is a financial hit, but I have to leave because they're, this is a really smart group of people and they're going to do something amazing. And so I think, you, I think you have to, in some ways, be pre-selected, but the pre-selection is almost like you're the kind of person that would give up money to work with intelligent people in this capacity and you recognize that they are, more, they are smarter than you. And then the other part of it is once you're in a room like that, you, I, I would imagine you, you can't, you're not gonna, you're gonna bring your best work because you're with these people and you, you'll get called out if you don't, you know, it's sort of that kind of culture. And, and that's, I think, true for a lot of startups because they are generally underfunded. They have a lot to do, big ambitions. But I, I, I think that there's something about this particular group that was special. The other, you know, the other part of it that actually no one really talks about is, after the bus starts, PayPal becomes the, one of the only places where you can get a job, right? So at a certain point, so early on, they're having to like really hire like whoever they can. But later, as played back to me by a few of the people who are involved in recruiting, you do get into a situation where PayPal is like suddenly one of the few startups that still has funding and like has its pick of engineering talent and doesn't have to hire anybody that comes off the street, right? And so that's the, there's a there's a there's a wide answer to the question of sort of nature versus nurture and i think it's both but i think that story about santos really spoke volumes uh in the level i i will say hiring for trust was not a thing that i had heard before i started my research on this book you can hire for various things i had never thought about the idea of hiring for trust because it's a little amorphous yeah, yeah how do you sure. how do you measure it 
this uh yeah it, it, i love this i i i want to thank you so much for for taking the time for this whole conversation i feel like i mean i love the book but i also loved it because you put together so many layers and so many of these nuances where like the, the answers aren't obvious but i think anybody who reads the book is just like you said everybody who came out of the company had sort of their own their own lessons and was shaped it in of it in a different way and i feel like it's the same with reading the story there are like so many like it's almost like you reread it i expect to reread it like a year or two from now and you'll find different lessons in it because there's just so much nuance so many interesting ideas so this this was a ton of fun and um, thank you yeah thank you for doing I, it this and thank you for taking time to read that I, you know i'm actually glad to hear you say that because i don't I was worried that people would like that, that, that you could see this as like a guidebook or a handbook. And in some ways it is like people will learn things that'll help them, but I didn't want to write, you know, this wasn't good to great. Like it's, it's not, not that kind of book. It's a story out of which can emerge lessons about startup success and failure and about business in general. But I didn't set out to like give people the five the secret sauce is like yeah. five things. <laughs> I, but I love that. I, I think when you when you make it very on the nose, it's sort of to to me the, the lessons from a great story or from a story well told are often like you walk away and you you chew on it and then you're like, oh, maybe oh, I get it. Okay, that's interesting. And and remember he did this and like that guy said. Versus if you're like, here's the five things. It, it, it's just. I, I find this a lot more compelling. That's just my personal preference. And, and, and again, I think you did a fantastic job. Um, so, you know, thank, thanks for that. And thanks for, for sharing your thoughts. And I can tell there's like a deep well of like extra stories wanting to be, to be told. So, uh, yeah, so. maybe that's the second book. It's, uh, it's, it's the founders of sequel. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much. I'm, I'm going to stop thank the you. recording now. And, uh,